wanted to just write a story that says, which is often how coverage of race um, and, and racial inequality is, is someone writes a, study, a story about some new study that comes out or some new report or interviews someone about their hard times. Um, that to me is not compelling anymore. That is a given, we know it to be true and it's not illuminating anything and it's certainly not moving us to do anything about it. Um, a matter of fact, often the reaction is, I know. And when you know it, and you think you know it, you're not, gonna, you're not gonna feel like we need to actually do something to rectify it because you have already accepted it as society that these disparities exist. So it's not enough to have an idea that you wanna write about these things. You have to actually find, I, I'm sorry, I keep saying writing, I apologize, but you do write, right, to build a podcast. Um, report, it's not enough to, to come up with an idea that you want to cover these issues, you have to find a way to get in and tell a story that's going to surprise people about something that they already know, that's going to illuminate uh, a particular issue or that this problem is not what I thought it was. Um, and that's the only way I think that you're really going to be able to hook people on things that they, they don't know. When I decided to start writing about school segregation three years ago and I was trying to pitch, I would come to editors and they'd be like, of course schools are resegregating, we know that. And I'd be like, well, you don't really know the, the story though. And they'd say, we know it. So I'd tell them, tell me the story then. And then the room would get quiet because they actually don't know how it's happening. They just know that it is. And that's your entryway often, is that this thing exists, but most people have no idea how we got here. Right, And no, most people have no idea what are the actual ways that this inequality is being created by real people and that's being maintained by real people today and that this isn't just some natural um, thing that is occurring. So when I decided I was going to do a big project on school segregation, I needed to figure out what is a way to get into the story where I can actually show how this happens. And I think whenever, whatever that, that so social issue it is that you want to get into, you're going to have to find that really unique angle that's going to make people stop and think, wow, I didn't know that. So I knew the school resegregation was occurring. I wanted to be able to prove that it wasn't occurring by accident, that it wasn't just a legacy of the past, but that there were actually real people who were making it happen. And so I knew that uh, many school districts had been under court order to desegregate schools. And because of those court orders, they had been made to do certain things that led to integration. And then I knew that when those districts were being released from these, those desegregation orders, that many of them were resegregating. So that is a, a good point, because you know if you had to do one thing and it led to integration, and you no longer had to do those things anymore, and suddenly your schools were segregating, you could go to that point in time and say, well, what did they do once they no longer were under a court order? Who made those decisions? So the first thing I did was collect data. And what this particular graph shows is um, the zero point is the point at which a school district was released from a school desegregation order. And um, the numbers going up the left side, if those of you who are familiar with kind of desegregation and segregation indices, the higher the number, the more segregated a district is, the lower the number, the more integrated a district is. So you see when the districts were under court order, they were actually pretty integrated. Anything below 50 in this country, 0.5 is considered fairly integrated. Anything higher than that starts to be uh, really segregated. And then at that zero point, which is when they were re released from the court order, you see a spike across all of those districts, which tells you that immediately upon being released from judicial oversight, those districts were doing something. So to me, that's a story. I wanna figure out what did they do, and now I can tell the story of resegregation in a very intentional way. So realizing data is one thing, but we're gonna to need to find a story. And I'm gonna tell you how I use this map to find a story. All of these are different school districts, and I knew I was gonna to have to find one of these places to write an actual narrative because as an investigative reporter, which is what I do, you can investigate the hell out of something, but if you can't get people to read it or listen to it, doesn't really matter, okay? So this often when I speak at narrative conferences or conferences like this, people don't necessarily wanna hear this, but I think that storytelling is important, but reporting is equally important or if not more so important. And why is that? Because otherwise all you have is an anecdote. And I don't think, I think anecdotes can help change things, but an anecdote alone is just somebody's story. And for me, I'm trying to do a much bigger lift than that. I'm trying to point out something that is systemic, that is not just this individual person's story, but that where there are much larger uh, forces at hand that we need to be looking at. 
So my normal process is once I've kind of decided, I think I know what the story is, I think um, this is the, the avenue that I'm going to pursue, I need to report the hell out of that before I'm ever even looking for any character or, or trying to figure out what the narrative is. My normal process is a little insane, um, but I'm trying to find out what data is available out there. What can I actually get that can show what it is that I think that I'm seeing, right? What's the worst place? And I don't think you should always tell the story from the worst place because that can be kind of an easy trope, but I think you should know who's doing it worse. Um, and a lot of times, you're, if you're a regional or a local reporter, you're, you're needing to tell that story from where you are, but you need to have a point of comparison. Then you need to find out what else has been done out there, because there's nothing worse than thinking you have this big scoop or interesting story that's already been done before. Um, and then I do a, an intensive research, not just of what other journalists have done, but anything that I can find that's ever been written or broadcast on this particular subject. Because again, we're trying to tell a story that has not been told before about subjects that people have been telling stories about for a long time. If it's a deeply entrenched societal issue that needs has been happening for a long time, poverty, segregation, racial discrimination, gender inequality, these are all old stories. And so it's important to know what's been done so that you can find your own little angle that's gonna stand out from what everyone else is doing. Once you figure that out, once you've done that reporting, then of course we all know the way that you draw people in is with the humanity, with finding the, the person or the place that people can really connect to. So what I decided, um, based on that first chart that I showed you, I knew I was gonna go to one of those school districts because that chart was showing the most rapidly resegregating school districts in the country, the 10 most rapidly resegregating districts. So the districts that, at the point of being released from court order, were um, seeing the most intense school segregation 10 years out. So then I had to figure out which one of those places should I go to? Which one is gonna have the most compelling story? And so I, I researched each one of the places and ultimately decided on Tuscaloosa, Alabama for a variety of reasons. One. If you know history, you know Tuscaloosa is where George Wallace stands in the schoolhouse door to block the desegregation of the University of Alabama. So as a narrative device, that's a great place to tell a story of our backwards progress. Can you have backwards progress? <laughs> <laughs> our backwards motion movement, I guess I would say. Um, so I knew I was going to tell it from there, but then you're, you're trying to figure out how am I going to tell the story. And for those of you who know my work, and if you don't know my work, my work, uh, we always joke that my work starts from 1619, the year 1619, um, which is the first year that Africans were brought to this country to be enslaved. And so I say you can never tell a story about racial inequality without actually going back to the beginning. Most of the time, my editor, well, never have my editors actually let me go back to 1619, but I almost always go back at least 50 years or so, especially when I'm writing about school segregation, I need to go back to the point when segregation was still legal and build this case of how we got here. So I knew I was going to be, in this particular piece, I was going to be spending probably three quarters of the time um, in the past. And how do you write something where three quarters of it takes place in the past and get people to read or listen to a very long history with most of the people are not even around anymore? And how do you make people then care about that story all the way until we get from, in this case, the story begins in about 1952 until 2013. Um, so I'm thinking of multiple ways to tell the story. Am I going to tell it from the high school that resegregated? Um, am I going to tell it from a particular school? Am I going to tell it, is, this, is the character going to be the town, which Tuscaloosa is, uh, I love the South, but Tuscaloosa is definitely an old South town, and so there was plenty there where, where you could make the character a town. Was I going to have one character or more? And so these are all the things that I'm thinking about as I'm trying to decide how am I actually going to tell the story. Um, so I knew pretty early on, and even before I went down to Tuscaloosa, that I wanted to try to tell the stories through three generations of one family. This was the narrative device that I was going to try to use. And I thought about that because I realized if I could take each period of history, so the beginning of the story is going to be about um, legal segregation, then we have this period, this generation of of desegregation, and then we have a period of resegregation. And how could I get people to go through that entire span of time? And I thought if I could tell that story through three generations of one family, then you would care about that family, and you'd be able to see that arc 
that narrative arc of history through one single family. Um, so I went down to Tuscaloosa and I had no idea if I was actually gonna meet you know, the right family to tell this story through. The one good thing about small southern towns is a lot of times, you know, in New York, everyone seems like it's from somewhere else, but a lot of times in small southern towns, people don't move as often. So it's not so hard to find a student in high school who had a grandparent who also went to that same high school and who still lived in the same town. So I thought my odds would be good, but I didn't know. Then of course you actually need the characters to be compelling. Because you can be a hell of a storyteller, but people are really sharing and, and, and and talking to you in a compelling way, it can be really hard to tell that story. So the first day I go down, I meet Delisha. And um, I meet her within the first week at the high school. And as soon as I met her, I knew she was the one. I just hoped her family was also the one, but she for sure was the one. Because I'm also thinking, I'm writing about children who have been marginalized, children who we as a country have made a decision um, that we're going to tuck them away in their own schools. We are going to provide them with uh, an unequal education, and we don't want them around our kids. And I need to make those people care about this kid. So, um, and this is something I actually struggle with, is trying to find that perfect person to be representative. Because I actually think if you are a C student who just is kind of bumbling your way through school, that you actually still deserve a good quality education too. Um, but Delisha was kind of what we say that every student should be, right? She's like president of the student body. She's a track star track athlete. She's a homecoming queen. Um, and she also is very aware of the education she's not receiving and um, has taken all of the best courses at her school but can't get higher than a 16 on her ACT and she's applying for college. So I meet her and I know that she's the one. And then I asked to uh, meet her family and very quickly get the basic framework for the story. So James is her grandfather. He went to the old segregated black high school and never attends an integrated school day in his life because even though he's born, um, he starts kindergarten the year Brown v. Board of Education. Part of the story that I'm telling is how there was massive resistance and though we believe the Supreme Court rules on Brown and then America was like, Let's sing Kumbaya and move forward. That's actually not what happened. There was a lot of resistance. He actually never attends integrated school. But his daughter, because of this federal court order in 1988, finally integration comes to uh, Tuscaloosa. And she's in that first integrated class um, and manages to become the first person in her family to go to college. By the time she has her own kids, um, the school district has voted to resegregate the schools. And her own daughter, Delisha, spends 13 years in the same schools that her grandfather went to in that town and also never attend school with a white kid. So that becomes the basic framework of the story and that's the story that I know through that narrative I can actually draw people through and make people see something that they didn't know which is that we have a generation of grandchildren whose school experiences looks no different than their grandparents did. That's kind of the aha moment for a lot of people and I think you get that story through all the data and the reporting but also through the narrative. And so then, of course, every story, so Delisha's the hero, and every story needs a villain. <laughs> but I don't believe that there are, there are rarely true villains. I won't say there's mm. never <laughs> <laughs> true villains these days. I was ha I've been having my conversation with my daughter a lot about good people and bad people, because we watch a lot of network uh, cable news, and <laughs> finally gave up on the notion that some people aren't entirely bad, because maybe they just are. Anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I always believe, I mean, you want to, you, you have to have that tension. But to me, most, what's most interesting is when the villain is not actually truly a villain. And that's what's so compelling. So this is, a, this is a, a black judge in Tuscaloosa who was a civil rights lawyer who fought for, um, you know, he sued the county under the Voter, Voting Rights Act and became the first black elected official in his town and opened the door for a lot of people. But he also helped sign the deal that led to the resegregation of the Tuscaloosa schools. And I wanted to know why, and everyone in the county felt that he, you know, a lot of the black people in the county felt that he had sold them out. And so he becomes kind of my narrative tension because he's not expected. You're expecting the villain of the story to be white, and there were plenty of them too, and they're also in the story, but you're not expecting this black judge who is not a Clarence Thomas. He is a black judge who has fought on, on behalf of civil rights. Um, 
but ends up feeling that uh, the tides were, were changing, that every time they tried to fight for integration for black kids, the white parents would just move their kids, and that it was very demeaning to black kids to keep chasing white folks across the district and trying to force their way into schools where they weren't wanted. And he also realized that at that time, um, George Bush was president, and his Justice Department was forcing the closure of a lot of these civil rights agreements. And so he understood that in this town, the writing was on the wall, and this school desegregation order was going to probably end sooner or later. And at least if he worked with the white elite behind closed doors, maybe he could get some things for black kids. And so he signed the deal, hoping to get economic advancement. Um, but the white people didn't follow through, surprisingly. So he becomes kind of the tension between Delisha and her family and uh, the resegregation. And that's kind of how we end up to, I end up telling the narrative of school resegregation in the South. And I just love this picture of Delisha because she's amazing. Um, <laughs> and what I'll say about um, Delisha, we kind of end, the way that I end the story is with uncertainty. And that's because one at that point, Delisha had applied to schools and heard nothing back. She was getting into no colleges whatsoever. Um, her college dreams hinged on one hope, which was this historically black college in Birmingham where she had been promised a track scholarship. And at the time of publication, we didn't know if she was going to get in or not. And she really didn't want to go to historically black college because she was hoping college would be the first time she would actually have the experience of going to school with America which is multiracial and diverse. Um, and I end the story there, and I end the story there, one, because the story wasn't finished, but also because I never want to end my stories on hope. And we <laughs> went back and forth with this on the piece that we did together, because I think if you tell a really sad story about an injustice, we have this urge to wrap it up and make people feel you know, hopeful at the end. I don't want you to feel hopeful. I want you to be angry and hurt all the way to the end so that maybe we'll do something about it. And I think that's something you should always think about. I, I mean, even now we're looking at some of the post-election coverage and we're already trying to find the silver lining. Um, there isn't a silver lining for the millions of black and brown kids trapped in these schools. And we should not always feel when we're writing about these issues, the urge to provide that silver lining. I think we should, we should leave them as they are, which is a lot of people will be in a desperate situation at the end of our story. Um, so quickly, and we're going to move on to, Hannah's going to talk about a little bit about the piece we did together, which um, you guys would know as a problem we all live with, but what started with this very long print story that no one read. <laughs> I read <laughs> which, it. <laughs> which is the beauty of, of radio. But that I, I understood, I mean, I pitched this story to you guys before I reported it, but the timing didn't work out. Even though I'm a print reporter, I always heard this as a radio story for a variety of reasons. And so Hannah's going to talk to you about that and um, just in general kind of story structure and, and how to get these narrative voices in to actually make people care about issues that we kind of ignore. You're going to help me. And I'm going to help. Okay, so so I'm. This is helpful to see all this. So, but basically, by the time Nicole and I met, she had done all of this reporting, and I had read a lot of this reporting, um, and I had done education reporting for This American Life, and um, and so the pitch, just, all of that, just to say that by the time Nicole arrived at the story that ended up being the problem we all live with. She had done, she had sort of gone through this whole process of having a beat, studying it, trying to understand the historical context for it, looking at data, doing all of that work so that um, she was coming at the story that we reported together with so much context, um, which uh, made it what it is. Uh, and that story just, have most people, have you guys raised your hand if you haven't heard that story? Has anybody? Okay. Don't so it's a, um, it's about a, it's about the district that Michael Brown went to school in when Nicole was watching the coverage of Michael Brown, um, because she had done this previous reporting, was interested in the district and what the story of the district that he, he had just graduated from high school was, and found out that it was, um, a segregated district that had had over the previous few years, a lot of interesting stuff had happened where students from that there had been involvement of courts in, in transferring students from his district into a majority white district nearby. And there, uh, so that was a story that was pitched to us. I, um, she and I started working together and went back and interviewed some of the people that she had talked to already, including a mom and a daughter, Nidra, 
and Maria. Um, and I'm just going to play a little bit of them and then talk about, like, like, in the same way that Nicole did with her previous reporting, you obviously want characters. So we're starting with who's the character who's going to be the character who's going to help us tell the story and who's going to be our main person. And she had already talked with them. They were uh, useful to sort of the, the arc of the story in that uh, the daughter, Maria, had experienced all the changes in the school, so we knew that we could tell it through her, and also they were just, they were uh, compelling people. So here is a little clip of that. Nietzsche grew up in Normandy and works in human resources. Her daughter, Maria, is a star student. Still, Nietzsche found herself worrying about Maria's education all the time. Maria, to be honest with you, she wasn't having a problem. She... I was just going to say, she's an awesome child, okay? <laughs> I love her. When you ask them questions, Nidra and Maria, their eyes fix on each other. I've got a daughter, and I kept wondering what magic parenting spell Nidra has cast to get her teenage daughter to like her so much. So that's just a small, that's the very first time you hear from them. Um, it's the thing that Nicole and I talked about right after we interviewed them, is that Nicole said, exactly that she said like God, what the hell and you just notice it with them like there is there's not that many moms of teenage daughters who talk in front of their teenage daughter about them like that and then the daughter doesn't totally slap them down <laughs> um and so we had just talked about that so that's just a thing always in reporting the first thing that you notice about a person the thing that strikes you about a person the thing that you go home and tell somebody at home about that person put that in as soon as you can it also is really helpful in radio that it's a thing that you hear later so it's repeated later and you feel like you've both been introduced to this person and then you you have a sense of intimacy with them because you know a thing about them um, for instance, so there's another, I, I do this a lot with people who are just hard characters who are not awesome tape. Um, the second, there's a second part of the problem we all live with about a district in Hartford and it, that story starts with this lawyer who's a civil rights lawyer who's a very slow, deliberate talker, non-emotional, um, and I think Nicole and I interviewed him for like three hours and then I went back to him for another hour. He's a hard guy to interview. Um, and so this is how he's introduced. The person who got Hartford to go from screaming over that report to actually doing what it called for was a man named John Britton. John Britton is a civil rights lawyer. He brings the decorum of a courtroom to all matters. John Britton says, excuse my street language to proceed an entirely dignified statement. He can elevate simple things like phone tag. Hello, Hannah. This is John Britton calling you back as you requested. I'll try you later on today. I believe you can hear his bow tie through the voicemail. It's uh, Tuesday, the 14th of July. Bye-bye. Okay. Can so I just say, like, one, I, I think this is one of the things you're so good at, um, that I would, I mean, it was, it was amazing to work with her because as a, as a writer, I'm like, I would never have put that there. But, but it tells you so much in, in like a very limited amount of time. But it's also the beauty of radio because you can actually hear how buttoned up he is after you've like introduced him that way. Right, so. right. And I feel, I mean, I totally stole exactly that from Nancy Updike who does it like seven <laughs> times in this show that she did about private contractors in Iraq and in lots of her reporting. Um, but she'll often give you like a little detail about somebody. She has a line in that show that I always think about where she says, um, she's, she's like kind of quickly moving by this guy and she's like, and Hank is kind of like a blah, I don't, wearing a polo shirt and should wear a little bit more sunblock. And he says, blah, 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 blah. And I just always think of that, like he should wear a little more sunblock. Right. I just feel like I completely, okay, I know that guy. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and then I often will do, this is another thing that I've also stolen from Nancy. Like I will do that later. I'll try to like signal something that's going to come later so that when it comes back, you are also feeling like, oh, that guy, that guy who does that thing. So. So that's John Britton when he comes back. This is like two minutes later in the piece. Of course, those who could testify most credibly about the conditions in the schools were employed by the schools. And we had to ask the superintendent if he would mind using his employees to be plaintiff in the case, and he consented. Happily? Yes. Right. What superintendent do you know would let his employees be a plaintiff in a suit, it's going to, excuse my street language, badmouth the district in terms of its, its advantages. 
in open court. So I think the power of listening to somebody talk is the intimacy. Like the thing that the power of writing the series that Nicole wrote before is that you have you have length and you can write a whole paragraph that is historical context for something. You don't, that is not the superpower of radio and audio, but the superpower of radio and audio is definitely that intimacy. And, and you want, to me, I am always trying to leverage that intimacy toward character. That is the thing, is I want there to be somebody fairly early on that you are connected to and that you care about and you feel like even if they're not the most sympathetic person, just that you know them. They're like your uncle who talks in that way, or they're just somebody who is familiar to you. Um, and I'm just gonna play one thing of Nancy's because I love it. This is, this is uh, also from the private contractors in Iraq. Hank is the man who was brought in to clean up Custer Battle's PSD operation. It's had some problems, more on that later. Hank has a vision for the kind of men he wants working for him. Steely-eyed, flat-bellied, professionals. It's possible Hank came up with this description by looking in the mirror. He's a 49-year-old man with small blue eyes, a former paratrooper and ranger, the son of a decorated soldier, married to the daughter of a soldier, father of two soldiers, one of whom was in Iraq and is now in Afghanistan on a mission he can't talk about. Hank is cryptic. He doesn't want me to use his last name. He won't even tell me what rank he achieved. I looked it up later, Lieutenant Colonel. He's done private security work overseas before. He won't give details, of course. But he will, and this is the thing about Hank, he will poke fun at it. Okay, so I, so again, like this is not also the most sympathetic person, right? Like you're not like, oh, I love that guy, and he's like a victim of some horrible thing. He is, he's an interesting person, and Nancy's interest in him and sort of commentary about him and the things that she is noticing about him, she's sharing with us right away so that we are seeing him through her eyes and also feeling like he's a person who we know. Um, is that supposed to tell me half, or yes. that I'm supposed to talk now? Okay. Uh, so, yeah, I think we wanted to talk a little bit about building building the structure for the problem we all live with. Um, I feel like the thing, once you, you sort of have your character, you've identified a person, and you've figured out a way to present them that creates intimacy with that person, um, then you, you have a story. You want to like see something happen through their eyes. So in the case of Problem We All Live With, that was Maria and Nidra. We see the entire story through their experience. Um, and even though we're kind of leaving them at different points, we're, we're, they're our guide through it. Um, and I feel like with stories that are, are trying to kind of take on an issue and also do it with characters, you tend to have kind of one or the other. You have a story that does a really good job of meeting a person, getting to know a person, having an experience with a person, but they're never put in a context that helps you understand something bigger than their experience. Or there are the stories that sort of begin from a kind of macro issue level. So I'm gonna write a story about um, police brutality and it's gonna look at data and it's gonna talk to various experts and maybe I'm gonna have some characters, but they're gonna just be in there to be like, oh, this horrible thing happened to me as a quote and I move on. Um, and I think the thing that makes these kind of stories successful, at least on the radio, um, is that there is a marriage of those two things, that you are figuring out a way to take the character um, who you have made people connect to and has a story that you want to walk through with them and the context that they exist in. Um, and the thing that, so the thing that I have been thinking that there's a bunch of, there's more and more kind of media that is trying to do this, I think, that's trying to contextualize people's stories. Um, the piece of media that I feel like did it most successfully and I just was totally blown away by was OJ Made in America. Have any of you guys seen that? Um, so I thought, I just was totally struck by that show, a show about a man who all of us know and feel like we know everything about and remember watching him in the chase and know the story. There's been a million books and there's been people who've written about him and it's just a very, very familiar story and I have no questions about O.J. Simpson. Like I have nothing that I wanted to know more about him. And that series, just you finish that series and you feel like I have an entirely different sense of him, of the way that we in various, in different ways responded to him, of his entire experience of America. Um, and so for this, I thought, like, I do want to walk through a little bit of the structure of the problem we all live with. Before this week, I coming here, I just tried to map out, like, the structure of the pilot episode of that, which I think you have, right? Yeah. So 
The pilot, I mean, the whole show is really amazing, but the pilot is amazing in terms of just the amount of stuff that it covers and the way that it meanders through his story. Um, so really quickly, uh, I think I'm gonna look here. So it opens, it opens with O.J. Simpson today, present day O.J. He's locked up in Nevada. He's being interviewed, he's uh, being filmed in a hearing and people are asking him questions. and about his experience now, and then they say, when were you first arrested? And it was 1994, right? And he gives this look like, God, I'm gonna have to talk about that. And he's like, you mean the first time? Yeah, I guess it was 1994. And it goes black, and you feel like, okay, it's a documentary about O.J. Simpson, now we're gonna go to 1994. But it does not go to 1994. It goes to this whole section about USC, where he went to college and played college football. Um, and it tells you, you know, USC is crazy about football, OJ was great at football, USC was crazy about OJ. You see a little bit of that. 12 and a half minutes in, the transition into the next uh, section is you hear somebody saying, I heard a civil rights leader once say that if you're gonna be a Negro in Los Angeles, you're in US, you're best off in LA. And then it's a whole section on the Great Migration and the hopes of the Great Migration of moving to Los Angeles and being met with disappointment and it's just like Jim Crow South and you see the LAPD and the Watts riots in 1965. The next chapter, 22 minutes in, still have not mentioned the murder at all, 22 minutes in, um, there's, uh, you're, you go back to USC and they say like all of this stuff that was happening, this context that we just told you about, we just drew a line around this part of O.J. Simpson's experience, was the context of the Watts riots and the Great Migration that was met with disappointment. And, um, and then you go back to USC, and they tell you, and this is where O.J. was at the time, and he's playing football in front of this mostly white college that is right next door to where the Watts riots is happening. So now you're coming back to the same thing, and you're like seeing him in a different way. You're seeing him in this context that you now have, and then, then they, they go through this whole section 25 minutes in about the organizing that was happening among black, black athletes at the time and that OJ responded to that by saying he was not interested in that and he was not black, he was OJ, and, uh, and that that is all happening. Um, and then you're, you're coming back to him at USC and seeing him win the Heisman Trophy at the same time as Muhammad Ali is saying he's, he's not participating in the draft and there's the Olympics boycott. And all of that just makes uh, yeah, makes you see, see him in this entirely different way. And it's only 35 minutes in, 35 minutes in, they do this amazing montage in 1968 where they show him playing football and his coach and ask the coach what was happening in 1968. And the coach says, I mean, it was just OJ was winning games and that's all that was happening. And we were so excited and we wanted to support him the best we can. And then it's sort of like, a montage of everything else that is happening outside of there. This is all like so many years before the story that we all know about O.J. Simpson. Um, and in contrast too, there's another, there's another series that came out about O.J. at the same time last summer, The People versus O.J. Simpson, um, which is also good, but it starts uh, the very first minute of it, or I think it's only 30 seconds in the very beginning, starts with the Rodney King beating and footage of that and then the response to that and then there's a like title card that says 1991 and then they show you 1994 and you're up to the trial and that's the beginning of the series. So it just makes an entirely different story, the fact that you have started way, way back in time and it also goes even further back in time later and you're, you're seeing both his like development of his racial identity over these years and the, develop, and the response to him, the white America's response to him um, in opposition to the civil rights movement that was taking place at the same time. Um, how, there, how many of you guys said you saw that? Okay. So I think, I mean, the only thing I would add to, to that is this is uh, probably one of the best examples I've ever seen of taking a story that everyone thinks they know and make it, making it completely compelling and completely new, which is what we're, anyone who's come in this room because of the topic is what we're trying to do. I mean, I was telling Hannah, like, when I heard there was this eight-hour documentary on OJ, I was like, are you, like, yeah, kidding same. me? Like, one, yeah. I hate OJ. I don't want to hear anything else about him. And what is there left to tell? And I binge-watched eight hours in one day. Like, I, every episode that ended, I couldn't stop watching it because it wasn't a story about OJ, 
right? And it wasn't a story that any of us actually knew or had put the pieces together in that way. And so I think that's what we're trying to do. And this is, I mean, this is actually about the deepest societal issue in America, which is race. That's what the OJ movie is actually, the doc is actually about. But it's not, it's never saying this is gonna be a movie about, a documentary about race. It's never throwing it in your face. It's peeling back um, each part of that in a very, unexpected way, and I think that's what, you, what you're having to try to do. That's why the structure of the story is so important. It's not just what you've reported or what narrative you have, it's how are you actually telling the story. The structure becomes, I should, there should be three, right? Narrative reporting and the structure, because the structure is, is I think it's equal three parts to how you, you get people to actually get hooked into these types of stories. And I think the thing about the structure of the pilot and the structure of the series overall um, that's so successful is that they, he, he's choosing these moments that he wants to build to in each episode, and in this episode, it's, it's this moment, which is a video that I could show you, except that it doesn't play on my laptop. Um, so Nicole and I are gonna act it out. Uh, uh, so it's, like a, it's this moment of this montage in 1968 where OJ is winning the Heisman Trophy, and this white school is celebrating him and what he means to them, and then at the other, Time you're seeing everything else that is happening in 1968, um, which is, I think, like when, when, especially when I'm thinking about a sort of long, hour-long show, I think I'm often trying to identify, like, what is the thing that we are building to? So we have a character who's going to move through some experience, and there's some moment in it that's going to, that's going to be the central thing. And for the problem we all live with, um, it was definitely the meeting, the the meeting, this parents' meeting, where parents at the white school are talking about having kids from the black school come to the white school. Um, and so we're very much thinking like, okay, we need to meet Maria Nidra, we need to learn about the school that she is coming from, and then she is gonna be the person who is gonna take us to this meeting. And we're gonna be also seeing the meeting through her eyes. And I feel like it's interesting, like after that show ran, we heard so much from people saying, I can't believe that meeting happened. I can't believe how, like, how straightforward people were and they weren't even hiding it. And I feel like that is, I mean, that's partly a thing that you hear when you hear that meeting, but I think a lot of that has to do with the way it's structured in the show. Like, you're there with Maria. You're there with a person who you've already connected with who's 12 or 13. Mm -hmm. She's a little girl, you know, who's seeing this meeting where people are saying things. And so you're also hearing it through her ears. Um, and so I think I'm going to play. Should we play a little bit of that? Yeah, and I think that's where, like, the, the signaling in the, in the structure is important. So you're not, it's not just narrative and then you go to clip. Like you're saying, she's there, there's this girl there watching, and then you're playing the clip. And I think that's what makes it so powerful. You're not hearing afterwards her reaction to it. You know as you're listening, you're, you're imagining her being there. And I would have written that probably different. I probably would have played the clip or written it and then did it after. But I think that's what makes that so critical is you're, you're very conscious and so you have a, in a oh, no questions yet, y'all. <laughs> you, have an, you have an emotional, like you're already, it's priming you emotionally, and that's what we're really trying to do, right? Um, so that's, and this is, so this is an example of that. A mother named Beth Sarami approaches the microphone. This is what I want to know from you. In one month, I send my three small children to you, and I want to know, is there going to be metal detectors? Because... I, w I want to be clear, I I'm no expert, I'm not you guys, I'm, I'm, I don't have an accreditation, but I've read, I've read and I've read and I've read. So we're not talking about the Normandy School District losing their accreditation because of their buildings, or their structures, or their teachers. We are talking about violent behavior that is coming in with my first grader, my third grader, and my middle schooler that I'm very worried about. And I want to know, you have no choice like me, I want to know where the metal detectors are going to be, and I want to know where your drug sniffing dogs are going to be, and I want, this is what I want, I want the same security that Normandy gets when they walk through their school door, and I want it here, and I want it, and I want that security before my children walk into Francis Howe, because I shopped for a school district. I deserve to not have to worry about my children getting stabbed or taking a drug or getting robbed because that's the issue. I don't to be clear. I just want to pause it before I play the rest. So, so that's that clip. 
there's a bunch of things that you could say after that clip. Um, you could just move on. You could just kind of narrate it through and say everybody claps for her and then she sits down. You could say that sounds kind of racist. You could say um, what this woman's story was. Like you could get to know her and say, well, she went to this district and blah, blah, blah. But that, but that sort of very intentionally is not what Nicole is writing out of this clip. Normandy did not lose its accreditation because of violence. It's easy to judge these parents, but I think part of what makes this scene so startling is that we rarely fight these battles anymore. The reaction to large numbers of black children moving into white schools would probably sound no different in New York or Chicago or Boston. It's just that in most of the country, no one is even trying. These parents don't want to try either. Do you want to say why you wanted to say that? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, I mean, so while we, are, while we were writing the script for this piece, I was, um, my daughter's school was going through its own integration battle in Brooklyn and I was hearing meetings that sounded just like that. And so I knew the reaction because people kind of consider St. Louis the South, and it, it kind of is, right? It's a, it, was a, it was a slave state. It's a, either the southernmost northern state or the northernmost southern state, depending how you think about it. But I think people definitely think of St. Louis as, as more southern, and so therefore the racism un, more unexpected. And so it was important to me to point out that this is actually not unusual and to center us before we started looking at those people as others and that really those people are ourselves. Um, the other thing that Nicole does in this meeting, which was a thing that you really pushed for too, is, is there's a lot of history in it, which like was sort of hard to excerpt for today. But um, it's, hard, it's pretty hard in radio to start a piece with a bunch of history or to have a section where it's like, I'm giving you your history. Um, and so we really tried consciously in the meeting, which we knew was sort of like, you were gonna be listening pretty careful to what happened and you feel like Mari is there and you don't know what the fuck is gonna happen next, that that is the place where you kind of wanna intersperse history. So there's a lot of like, well, what happened when these parents were in school? A lot of the stuff that she showed you before, like of the three generations, we wanted that context to be in there because it's important to understanding this story. And so we thought pretty strategically about how to structure that in so that um, it's in a moment where you're kind of, you're already maybe primed for wanting an answer to that question. Um, and then the other way, which just I have never, like I've produced a bunch of people and I've never seen somebody be able to do this, um, as well as Nicole does um, in interviews, which is just she's also doing it while she's interviewing people. Um, it's, it's so hard to write um, something historical into a narrative that has its own momentum and is moving forward. Um, and there's just a bunch of moments throughout where she's just like sort of throwing in a little thing so that you like have some sense of what has come before. So this is an example of that. Um, so this is Mar after the meeting ends, Maria um, does end up going to the school where you've just heard how all the parents are thinking about welcoming her, and this is the first day of school. I actually kept telling myself, the parents aren't the one that's going to the schools, it's the kids. Keep reminding yourself that. And so, though she didn't think about it this way, that fall, Maria joined an old American tradition Black children headed on buses to heavily white schools that had been forced by the courts to take them. She hadn't ridden the school bus since she was little. On the first day of school, she rose to catch the bus at 5.45 a.m. She found a seat, rode the 30 miles to Francis Howell, and as the bus pulled into the school parking lot, she peered nervously through the window. And what she saw surprised her. It was great, because when I got there, they had their little cheerleading squad cheering for us when we walked through the door. Welcome to Francis Howe, cheers like that. I'm not a cheerleader, so I don't know like exactly what they're saying, but just cheering, doing high kicks and everything like that, it was, it was great. I loved it. Francis Howell administrators would not talk to me, but best as I can tell, some teachers at the school were horrified by what happened at the parents' meeting and they wanted to make sure the new students felt welcomed. Here's Nidra. I mean, they celebrated that the transfer students were there. I'm were sorry. you there? I was there. So you <laughs> followed the bus? I did, I did, I did. Can I just say that during desegregation, this is what parents did? They put their kids on the bus to go integrate the schools and they followed behind because they needed to make sure their kids were okay? Yeah, you know, just just see how she was on the bus, you know. Make sure she was okay. 
Yeah. You must yes. have just exhaled. Exhaled. I I I told myself, okay, it's it's all good. She she's gonna be okay. So I love that. I mean, I love that Nicole in tape is saying like a, it's a very small detail too. It's not like the writing that came before the tape where she's saying and so like generations before, which is like also important to say. But it has so much more resonance when it's like a very specific detail. And then the fact that it happens in tape too is lovely. Um, how are we going? I'm sorry. Are we going until 5:15 or how much? Okay. Okay. Cool. Um, the, I guess the, the one other piece of tape I wanted to play is just this is this is a thing I've, I've thought about in a bunch of stories is like when you have a main character um, because we tend to talk to people who are the sort of delicious like the straight A student and the wonderful person and the like positive attitude and a good talker and us as a teenager who knows how to talk to grown-ups and has parents who say that they can talk to you um, you get a very particular kind of person and you and anyway one person is just this limited experience and so with uh, Ma and Maria is although she like I love in the tape she's like doesn't speak cheer or whatever she doesn't know <laughs> what they're saying um, she's like a cheerleader kid like she is like a, this is a good experience she really wanted it to be a good experience and she kind of made it into a good experience for herself um, so we also include this we talk to other kids and we include them too After a week, you was ready to go crazy because you're not used to nobody calling. Sorry, I should have said who this is. This is Rihanna. She's also from Normandy, from the same school district as um, Maria, and she also transferred at the same time. So she's describing the same period of time that Maria just described. After a week, you was ready to go crazy because you're not used to nobody calling you out your name and... You don't want to do it back because then what they heard about you is true. So you got to figure out, okay, how can I stand up for myself without proving to them that Normandy is ghetto? And like that was like the very hard part. What types of things would people say or do? Like my first week there, this girl, she tried me like, how can I say this? She ain't know me and I ain't know her. And she was, she was trying to fight me over nothing. Like, because she ain't like my presence, she wanted to fight me. And she called me a black, B-I-T-C-H, and a nigga who wasn't going to know nothing, who was stupid and ghetto and trashy. So I'm like, I'm not going to fight you. And then I get kicked out, and then you look like you're right. Was that the first time you've been called that word by a white person? Yeah. What, what did that feel like? I felt like somebody was stabbing me in my back. Like, it really hurt it. Rihanna thought about leaving and going back to Normandy. Her mom told her she could if she wanted to. She thought about it again and again, but she could not get that girl who called her names out of her head. Because I feel like if I was to run away, if I was to come back, then she, she was winning. And I had to prove her wrong. Like, I proved her I'm not stupid. I'm very intelligent. And just because I went to Normandy, that doesn't define who I am either. Um, yeah, so just, just the, I think there were like, uh, at the time that we were there reporting, Normandy students had been sent back to Normandy and then the, they had been challenged in court and so they were then given a path again to go back to this white school district, Francis Howell. And at that point, a bunch of students didn't want to go back. Um, and so in part, it's just always, you don't want to have one person have to carry the entire story of a whole bunch of very different kids who are having very different experiences. Um, but also, I mean, it was, it, it's a thing that then gets said, especially with school, school integration plans is like, well, some of the families don't even want to go. Like, that was being written about as we were there. Some of the Normandy families don't even want to send their kids, and the numbers are very low. Um, and that's a complicated story, you know, that they're complicated. And all these kids had totally different experiences and responded in different ways. Um, and we did talk to kids who had decided, like, yeah, I don't want to go back. I want to make Normandy a better school, and I want to be a cheerleader for Normandy. Um, and so I think just looking for ways to kind of shape, you know, especially when you have story. I mean, I, I would argue to try to do stories about the C students, too, um, but especially when you are kind of winding up with a story that is about the sort of exceptional, excellent student that you want to make sure to include the range by building a structure around your main student and then 
at different moments having other people kind of weigh in on what that moment was. I mean, I think also structurally that's a thing to think about is like you don't want like three parallel stories happening at the same time, but if you are bringing people in to talk about something that your main character has also experienced, it gives them kind of a reason to be there. Um, and then the last thing is that we promised we were going to talk about print radio. Do you guys want to know about print radio collaborations? Or are you all? Yeah. Yeah? What do, you, what do we have to say about that? <laughs> we, don't we don't prepare anything for that. Uh, I mean, I have thoughts about like producing people who write for print. Generally, the, the most common thing is just that people ask questions in really different ways when you're asking questions for print. Um, so like in the first day when we were asking questions, you're asking a lot, you're saying, Nicole was saying a lot of like, so I know that then you guys got sent here and then you got sent back and, and how many kids was that again? You know, and, and, and I was like, you need to actually just ask the question like you don't know anything. Like you have to be a person who does not know anything. And you have to say, wait, what happened? And then what happened? And then what happened? So that the person in tape is telling you, well, then we got sent here and it was crazy and then we couldn't believe it. And um, which is a thing like you picked up very quickly. I, other than that, I think it's, um, you know, the main differences of print and radio generally are like radio is really good for character, really good for plot, and not so great for content. Um, and the content has to be kind of like built around the character and plot, which I think as a print person is hard to imagine when you are gathering tape. Is that true that it's hard to imagine? Yeah, I mean, I think for me the most challenging thing was I'm like, I have all these stats and data and I need to like prove my point with all of this reporting. And of course, Hannah's like, nobody's gonna listen to that and you can't put all those, you know, like you have one time with the ear to hear something versus if I put a bunch of numbers in text, you can take your time, slowly read through it, go back if you don't understand things. Um, definitely, I mean, I'm a magazine writer, so I can write a sentence that has like four commas in it. <laughs> and so the writing has to be much more simple. And I think that, um, you know, I had to learn about how to write in a much more simple fashion, um, have to repeat things where you know, you say we need to say this again. We need to we need to signal yeah, yeah. the same thing again and again. So there was like learning in that. I think um, for me it was the best of both worlds because I got to do a print piece that had all of the kind of investigative, um, really data heavy reporting, um, but also felt like that wasn't being true. Like I couldn't tell the whole story that way. Um, when you hear Maria talk, when you hear her interacting with her mom, when you hear that scene in the gym, that would be like a sentence with me saying it sounded like a mob in there. That would not describe, you would not understand what that atmosphere is, but when you can hear it and you hear this like constant yelling and like how scary it sounds, like that's something that you can only do with audio. So I think for me it was like this perfect there is a chance to tell the stories both ways. And audio is um it's much more and, and magazines less than newspaper, but newspapers, you know, it's like one sentence quote, he said, one sentence quote, and that's all you get. In magazines, you can do much longer kind of extended quotes, but I think what I love most is people, you get to hear from the people and a lot less from the reporter. Um, and they're always much more interesting um, when people get to tell their own stories. So I think that that was good. Um, the hardest thing I think for me as someone who doesn't do audio is interviewing. There's like two things. One, I, I felt very naked when people could hear my interview style. Um, so particularly at the end, there's this back and forth. I'm interviewing the superintendent of the schools and um, I felt really weird that people could hear like how I interview people, which I assume if you do radio all the time, that doesn't bother you. But it was like I was revealing my secret. Uh, sauce. Um, and the other thing is, I'm, you know, most of us when we're talking to people and someone's talking, you're like giving them something back, like, mm hmm, okay, yeah, I get that. And of course, as you all know, but it's new for me, is you can't do that. And that was very hard because it felt very weird to just look and nod. <laughs> but I mean, I, I figured it out pretty quickly. Clearly, you can't do that. But it, to me, it felt harder to make a connection with people. Um, and, and my interviewing is like very, it's, the connection is very important. And that felt very strange. But and also, like you standing there with the microphone right there was a little weird. Yeah. But, <laughs> but other than that, I think I think it translated really well. I just think they they can do very different things, and and that's the power. Um, and what I loved about the podcast was like how shareable it was. You know, you have 
I don't know how many people sit through a 7,000 word narrative, but I can certainly say just based on how many people read the piece versus listened to the piece, uh, a lot more people really loved being able to listen to it. And it was just, it was much more portable and it, and it seemed that people had a much more visceral reaction to it. Well, you're a person in it too, in a way that, I mean, I don't know that that, that, that the radio necessitated it, but I think it, it you're always like hearing a radio reporter much more than you are necessarily hearing the voice of a writer. And so that's framed very much at the beginning right. from like you had an experience that you are thinking about as you're interviewing people. So even when you're asking um, Nidra about following the bus, like we as listeners are also sort of imagining that you have a particular experience that you're calling up when you're asking that, which I love about radio, but is, is different. Um, all right, do you guys have questions? Okay, I they want you to you... go to the microphone, I think, or it's wireless mic, maybe. So, hi, I'm Kelly Haywood, and I am from southeastern Kentucky and central Appalachia. And um, I work for a small community radio station, WMMT, there. We're housed in Appleshaw. And, um, First, I want to say I really appreciate you pointing out um, couching a story in context. Um, one of the things that has really bothered me, I work in both print and radio journalism, is that our neck of the woods is often represented by outsiders, and that is what we see put back to us from national media. However, the vast majority of the time, they get it very, very wrong. And we have had very few opportunities to tell our own story on a national level um, for whatever reason, whether it be our accent or, I don't know. I don't know why, um, because I see other groups of folks getting those opportunities and, and we don't seem to have them as often. But um, one of the things that I would like to work to change with my colleagues is that there be deeper collaborations with local journalists um, and local people who live in the community. Um, so I'm wondering what can we do to foster those connections because there are, um, for our culture to be understood, like recently when we were <laughs> bombarded with articles about us voting for Trump. <laughs> you know, that was just another example. It's been happening since the 60s. But what can we do to put forth our willingness to tell our own story and collaborate on deeper <coughs> levels and um, be able to put our story on, on that national stage? Because we have the context, we know the nuances, and we are perfectly capable of telling our own story. What's your name? Kelly Haywood. Hey, Kelly. So I would say, one, it's not, it's not on you. Um, I can tell you that when I go in, I'm a national reporter, so I'm definitely the person who's parachuting in somewhere. Though I don't, I don't really parachute because I, I tend to stay for a longer time because I have a long time to work on my work. But I always contact local reporters when I go into their town. One, I think it's just respectful if I'm going to come into your town. I've probably read everything that you've written or listened to what you've Right, written so that I have some context of what's happening there. And I think it's disrespectful not to do that. So we actually worked with the, um, the paper there, um, or the, the education reporter in St. Louis, Elisa Crouch. We talked to her. Um, and the public radio reporter. And the public radio reporter several times. When I was in Tuscaloosa with Segregation Now, I had lots of meetings and conversation with the school's reporter down there. I mean, ultimately, we didn't collaborate on the story. And maybe that's something to think about more. Though, did we interview her? We interviewed Elisa. Yeah. She was on tape, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we actually did in that piece, um, actually had an interview with the local reporter. But even if I'm not, like, I, I would never come into a community and not reach out to the local reporter. And I don't think other people should do that either. I think that's, that's a, a sign of respect. And like I said, clearly, you've probably watched or, or looked at that reporter's work to do your reporting. And so I, I, I think that you should do that. I don't think that's your job to, to reach out to us. I think national reporters coming in should definitely reach out. And to me, that's the only way I actually know. I mean, it's hard to get a feel of a place that you've never been to. It's hard to understand the nuance of a place, particularly if you're not 
spending, I mean, when I did segregation, I moved to Tuscaloosa for a month, and I probably spent two months together on the ground there. I had a better understanding of it than I would in two days, but I still don't really know it. So I think that that's critical. We definitely have reporters who reach out to us. We work with them quite a bit. But what happens is it's not a month that they stay. It's a couple of days, and they get a real surface level of a story and then report back to us a lot of misunderstanding that is embarrassing and often degrading to our people. Yeah, I mean, it's hard because sometimes all you have is two days and I can't, you know, I've been that reporter too. I hate being that reporter because I know I'm not gonna get things right. Um, and I think the only thing, again, like the onus is on the reporter when I'm writing things, I try to read things back. So if I came down and talked to you, I, I would try to read some of the things that, I'm, that I've written back to you and say, does this sound right? Am I getting this right? But I think it's really hard. And I think particularly when we're covering rural communities, the South, black communities, Latino communities, we're always getting it wrong because we, we don't really understand it. Um, and, and that is why media diversity is important. And it's not that other people can't tell those stories, but we need to have some humility when we're telling those stories and realizing that it's really fraught and there's a lot of shit we're probably not gonna get right unless we're really careful. And we have to be able to admit that. Like I can say, I don't know this that well. Does this sound right? Um, and I think a lot of reporters don't wanna admit that they wanna think if I'm a good reporter, I get it. And we know that that's not true. So thank you. Thank you. Question back here. Sorry. No, that's cool. That's cool. I, I was just going to add one quick thing, which is just if you're also talking about pitching stories, like having your own stories, you be the narrator of your own stories. Um, I would include in pitching editors how they they or other news media have gotten the story wrong. Like if you're pitching a story to pitch to include in the pitch, this is a thing that you know, these news magazines have gotten wrong previously and here is how it is and here is that story. I think editors like to feel like we're the ones who are getting the real true story. That's true. And another thing, like conferences like this, I mean network, because what I surely learned is it's not how good you are often, it's who you know. And um, editors are reticent to take risks on people who haven't already been published nationally, even if you're great. I mean, every national reporter usually was not always a national reporter. So I think use the opportunity. I mean, give me your card before you leave. Give Hannah your card. Like, the networking is really important, too. Hi, um, I'm Audie. We talked earlier. Hey. Um, and Hannah, I've been a fan of your work for a really long time. The question I have is when you come back with all of the things, that is sometimes where I get lost, where I have like three binders of data and paper. Uh -huh. I have 25 interviews for what will actually be a 10 minute story and all of the tape. And like I have a moment of just like, fear, this is getting deeper than I intended, but <laughs> what are the questions you're asking yourself as you're writing the story where you say every few minutes to yourself, right? Like as you're writing or as you're reviewing it for a self-edit, what are the kind of ways that you help guide yourself through that like jungle of stuff? Are you asking me or Nicole or both? Yeah. Is this an equal opportunity question or was it targeted? Uh, both. Okay. Um, I mean, I think for a radio story, I. I I would not get to the point of being back at my desk without having a sense of what um, what I thought the structure of the story might be. Um, so I am definitely, while I'm interviewing people, thinking about who's going to be the, the main voice and what what different kind of roles different people I'm talking to are going to occupy so that by the time I am getting back to my desk with that much material, I am not entirely unsure how to begin or who to start with. Um, and then I just, I just go through like all the main interviews and pull the stuff that I like from various people. I often find when listening back to the tape um, that I hear a thing that I didn't, I didn't hear quite as well in the beginning or I hear um, details that I think will, will be organized in a way that makes sense to me when I'm listening back to it. Um, and, and then I just structure around that. I always structure around the tape. So like with, with Problem We All Live With, it's, you know, we didn't write anything before we had the cuts of tape in the order that we thought it would go in. And then it changes and we move things around and we want, you know, Nicole wants a, an idea that like wasn't in there before and so you move a, a piece of tape to make space for that idea. But I'm generally, um, I feel like that is both a while I'm, while I'm reporting and when I'm back answer for me is, is I am usually like, before I've gone out to get tape, 
I have an idea when I go out to get tape, it changes, and I'm thinking as I'm doing that, who's the main person and what are they gonna say and where is the, you know, do I need them to tell this story in a ton of detail because it's gonna be the central story. Um, and then when I'm coming back, it also usually changes somewhat, but it, it usually by that point, I have a sense at least of like the plot or the, the, um, the structure that I'm going for. You want to No? I mean, I don't have a good process. My process is crazy and doesn't make any sense. Um, <laughs> I mean, I report on things for like months, so I just have a massive amount of material that I'm going through, and it's kind of insane. I mean, I, I, I always have an, I, I have an idea of like what the narrative structure is. Um, I usually have an idea of how I want to start and how I want to end, but structure is not, I, I'm terrible with structure, and thank God I have good editors who usually can fix my Terrible structure, so I, I have no advice. Sorry. <laughs> Get a good editor. <laughs> Hi, um, David Lewis from WNYC. I wanted to ask you a question about the OJ um, thing yeah. that you did because you took the care to map it out like that. But if there's a rule about story structure, what rule did that follow? What function did it serve to open that way? Why was it successful? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm still trying to figure that out. I think it's why I mapped it out that way. I mean, it is successful. Um, it's curious that it's successful given the amount of ground that it covers. And I think one of the reasons that it is is, um, I mean, they, do, they start with him now. And they, give, they say the first time you're arrested. So you have a sense of like, this is a person I know. I've established this is going to be the character of this story. and. Um, and they bring up the arrest, which is the thing that I know about him and presumably part of why I'm watching this series. So I know that that's coming. Um, and then I feel like the transitions, just trying to like think about the way that it's structured so that it's getting from one section to another, they're building on each other. So the first one at USC, I don't give a shit about football. Like I wasn't especially interested during that section, but it only lasts for like seven minutes. And they're showing USC being crazy about football and this guy being really good at football. And then they leave it to do this whole kind of history of African-Americans in Los Angeles. And when it comes back to it, it's building on the previous thing. So it's coming back to it and now I'm seeing oh, like all of these white people in the crowd who are crazy for this black athlete, they're seeing him through this lens of everything else that is happening right outside of the stadium, which I now know. And then it, every single step of it is like that. It's like building on a previous thing. Um, and I think they also use the familiarity of the story so that I know, I feel like I know him, but because I'm being surprised all the time, that's also keeping me watching. Um, I, I'm not entirely sure, but I, I feel like there is, a, there is a sense that you're learning that's keeping you watch and being surprised, and also that they, are, they like continually are returning to things that they've established previous, that when you see it later, it feels like a fucking magic trick, that you're like, oh my god, that looks totally different to me now. Um, and I, I mean, as an audience member, I always like that as a thing I'm, I'm in for. Yeah, I, I, just the two things I would add is I, I think there's a tension, and I think it's because you think it's going to be a story about him killing Nicole. And so you're like, wait, like there's oh, that built-in tension and you're not getting it, Yeah. Um, which is great. I mean, there's a point where I guess you can go too far, but since the narrative is so great, you go with it. And the other thing is, it's, it's like a whiplash, right? It's like, it's back and forth between these two thoughts. And so you, I don't know why it works, but it just does, which is why he's brilliant and we're just average. <laughs> <laughs> All right, huge thank you to Hannah and Nicole. <laughs>